Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. I am your host, Rachel, here with my co-host, Hannah. And today, we are going to be discussing the McAvoy Brothers' The Adventure Zone. Uh, We are only going to be discussing the Balance arc, because that is the arc that was most recently completed. And it's... We decided. We decided we're not going to try to do a summary because it's over the course of 69, like, hour and a half long episodes. And a lot of shit happens. Yeah, and your girls go off the rails, like, not in that much content of a situation, if you catch my drift. So, like, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to do us a favor and just kind of explain what the show is so that if you're not familiar, you won't be totally lost. Yeah, I mean, like, it took us, like, 12 minutes to explain the plot of Crimson Peak. Like, it would be the whole episode if we tried to explain what the hell goes on in the Adventure Zone. But the premise of the Adventure Zone is that it's a Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast um, made by Griffin, Travis, Justin, and Clint McElroy. And it's basically um, a campaign that they played out for a couple years where Griffin, who is the youngest brother, was the dungeon master and the rest of them played as characters. The three main characters, uh, Travis was Magnus Burnsides, who was a human fighter. Justin was Taco, who is an elf wizard. And I will never forget the first episode where Griffin just goes, did you name your fucking wizard Taco? (laughs) And coming in last was Clint McElroy, who's their dad, who played Merle Highchurch, the dwarf cleric. And the base, the most basic premise of it was that it was these three adventurers who over the course of the campaign realized that they were from a different dimension and that they were like these heroes who are fighting against this whole plain wide darkness and at the at the end of the day they regained all of these lost memories and they were able to find joy in the world and that learned that joy is like the only real weapon against despair and darkness all while uh cracking wise and rolling some dice and there was a happy ending at the end of it and i cried for like the last half hour of the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the Adventure Zone, where have you been on the internet for the past like three years? And you should go do that. But that's the basic premise of it, is that it was a collaborative effort of storytelling. And we ruined it for you. Like, that's that's a major, like, twist. So, like, you were done, if you haven't listened to it, I'm sorry, but you know the rules here. I'm sorry, but we told you we were going to do this, like, th- like four weeks ago. Yeah. You had the time. I mean, did, did they? It depends on how many hours a day you're willing to put in. But are you willing to put in the time? That's what you need to know before listening to this show. Anyway. <laughs> Where do we want to start with this? Because it, it's so much, but I think we, we came up with a couple really good big points to start with. I don't know. I think we should talk about kind of what the show meant to us and mm-hmm. and how it got associated with certain periods of our lives. Because I think that's an interesting thing that happens with media sometimes. Yeah, especially long-form media like the Adventure Zone, is, Adventure Zone is. Right. So things become tied up with like a certain event or period in your life. And then maybe we can talk about Dungeons and Dragons more generally yeah. speaking. I'm always down to talk about D and D. So you go first. What what period, what event of your life did this become uh, associated with? Sure. So one thing I did this year that was kind of a big deal is uh, we bought a house. Me and my significant other purchased property. And is both easier and harder than I thought it was going to be. But when you buy a house, <laughs> there's a lot of time spent, or at least I spent, packing, uh, working on the house. 
Like, I spent hours trimming bushes, just hours, probably like 24 hours total dealing with these overgrown bushes on the property and, like, taping to paint. And I did a lot of it by myself because my significant other, not because he didn't want to help, but just because of whatever situation he couldn't. And instead of being, like, lonely and kind of sad and scared that I had just spent the most money ever in the whole world that I had ever spent before, (laughs) and it's just really scary. I was listening to The Adventure Zone the whole time, so, like, it's associated with this really important period of my life and also, like, this period of huge change. And that was really important to me. I think it's hard for me to be objective about the show because of that, because it was something that sustained me and made me happy and kept me from being bored and lonely in an empty house, you know? Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I came to The Adventure Zone. I listened, I re-listened to it most recently last year right around when um, the Stolen Century arc was being put up, because the the episodes were released every other week. So there would be, like, a two-week waiting period between episodes. And during that time, I would catch up on stuff. I would always find myself coming back to it, but the last time I listened to it, it was um, during the waiting period between when episodes of the Stolen Century were going up, and I was at a job that I've since left that I did not like, and it was it was an office job that was kind of soul sucking. It was like a combination office and customer service job, which was never a good combination. But we could have Spotify on our computers, and Spotify had recently become a d- d- new newer distributor of podcasts, or a newer, not necessarily distributor, but you could find and listen to podcasts on their app and on their website. So I was like, well, this is fantastic. Now I don't have to worry about sneaking my phone into work. Getting through that last winter at that job, um, I had gotten to a point where I had to like sit myself down and tell myself, you need this job. You cannot just walk out. Like You can't do that. When I was like, well, you know, if I still have to be here, at least I can listen to this story. And it became this, this thing that really helped me look forward to every day. And it became just like a part of my routine. And even before that, before that happened, listening to The Adventure Zone, and um, I'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but watching Critical Role on Geek and Sundry were two of the big reasons we started playing D&D. Both Griffin McElroy on Adventure Zone and Matt Mercer on Critical Role really inspired me to want to try not just play D&D, but be a dungeon master and all the other stuff. The worst part about playing Dungeons and Dragons is finding people to play with you. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so so Adventure Zone became associated not only with the campaign that we're still in, that means an awful lot to me, but also like it was there at like this really weird low point in my life that wasn't really low emotionally like I've had before, mm. but it was low in like every other sense, like economically financially when you're stuck in a place that you can't really see the end of that isn't like threatening in any way it's just like god damn it do i really have to do this yeah so it was that particular millennial brand of soul sucking oh yeah that's a generational thing i think that is a generational thing for real because i i can tell like people are age that story and they're like yep totally feel you but some people, I think if you get to a certain age and you were just in a certain place when the job market was what it was 30 years ago, mm-hmm. like, can't relate. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't any, I don't think that's that's the fault of either us or older people. It's just, for that particular reflection, I think that's kind of just what it is. Capitalism. Yeah. We talk about, the other thing we talk about every week. <laughs> Maybe not every week. It just feels like it because it's been relevant. often. But that's kind of where I, where I came from with Adventure Zone. I also I thought this was interesting. I did not know it was a Dungeons and Dragons show when I started it. I was and continue to be really into audio dramas, mm. so I thought it was just an audio drama, which it kind of is in its own way. 
But then I started it and I was like, Dungeons and Dragons, you say. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here for this. So that might be that might be another place we kind of want to jump to one of the things we wanted to talk about, which is podcasting and Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games as methods of long-form storytelling and methods of collaborative storytelling. Because those two really, like, that's when those two things really intersect, both in podcast form, which is what Adventure Zone is, and also, like, when you just played a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know who would listen to this show and not know what Dungeons and Dragons is. <laughs> For the four of you. Um, actually, no, considering our numbers, that's probably a highball percentage. For the one of you. For the you. You specifically. Yes, you. We're addressing you directly. <laughs> I speak to you now. Dungeons & Dragons is a game where you have a dungeon master who writes and runs um, a scenario wherein the players play characters. Um, you have a race and a class, and you. some people get spells. Some people are really good at hitting shit. But you play through this story, and usually you roll some dice... Not every system actually has the same kind of dice, but it's basically a set of rules, and within the rules, you can make your own story. And something that I find interesting is all of the Dungeons & Dragons shows and podcasts that I've either listened to or watched, everybody adapts to the game a little bit differently. Because mm. even Wizards of the Coast, who publishes Dungeons & Dragons, even they're like, the rules are guidelines. So when you have a group like Critical Role, which on the spectrum is a bit more rules heavy, there there was a, p a post on Tumblr like a million years ago. Rest in peace, Tumblr, by the way. <laughs> a million years ago, where someone asked, what's the difference between Critical Role and Adventure Zone? And the example was two examples of dialogue, one from Griffin McElroy and one from Matt Mercer. And one was, it was the episode of Murder on the Rockport Limited, where Travis was like, so I'm going to get this rope, I'm going to run along this moving train with my levitating boots, kick in the door, and kill this guy. And Griffin was like, okay. <laughs> like, roll <laughs> to see if it works, I guess. And then the next panel was, uh, Sam Regal was one of the players on Critical Role being like, hey Matt, what time is it? And Matt is like, roll a survival check. <laughs> that's i mean that's a little bit simplistic but it's not untrue and some of it might be because matt mercer has been dming longer than we've been alive but some of it i think is just you you can play the game however you want and no one can really say you're wrong right Right. Like, there's a style of play that you come together as a group, mm -hmm. and it's whatever works for you. When we play, mm -hmm. we do a lot of role play. We spend a lot of time talking about our clothes. We go shopping a lot. Yeah, we have shopping montages. <laughs> yeah, we just, that's, we do a lot of that stuff because that's what we want from the game. And a lot of other people, especially different editions of Dungeons & Dragons, I'm not really familiar with other systems, but I know that earlier editions of Dungeons & Dragons were a lot more like a strategy game or a lot more geared toward combat. Mm -hmm. But I think 5e, and this is me not having played any other system, I feel like 5e strikes a nice balance and lets you do what you want to do without letting everything go like off the rails <laughs> i agree with that and it's weird i think some of it is whatever system you come to that you find works really good for you like you stand that system till the day you die and so like for me that's fifth edition i love fifth edition i totally agree with what you said where it strikes a good middle ground where the structure is as firm or as soft as you kind of want it to be but it, mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff you can do and a lot of like the extra cool effects classes and races get a lot of that lets you find and roleplay characters within the rules. Whereas something like, I, if I remember correctly, I believe 4th edition of D&D is basically a war game. Which, if that's what you're into, that's great. But um, 3.5, I think it leans a little more toward the crunchy side, where you it's a lot more particular. The system they are playing now on the Adventure Zone, Monster of the Week, 
I believe it's based on, I think it's Fate, where basically the whole time you play with like three six-sided die, and that's it. Oh, yeah. That's one of the more simplistic versions. There's like systems of tabletop roleplay where I don't think you even have dice. You just talk to each other and decide what happens. And then there's (laughs) something like, I would love to get into Pathfinder. This is my thing. Because I'm all about what Paizo's about, and that's their publisher. They provide stuff for free. They're really good about being, like, in the community and all that fun stuff. Ooh, I love me some open source. I know, man. It's great. The core rule book, however, <laughs> terrifies me. And I know some of it is, like, you get to just pick and choose whatever you want. But when the skills mm-hmm. section is hundreds of pages long, I'm just like, Paizo, I appreciate the effort you've put in. For someone, this is going to be the best thing ever. It's, I don't care. Because to me, that that almost gets too crunchy. It you it, To the point where, for what we like to do, I think it would kind of bog us down, having something yeah. that's that intricate. I can't even keep the paladin rule straight. I play a paladin, and, like, you have an oath, and you have spells, mm-hmm. and you have some other abilities... That's like three sets of things, right? Can't I can't remember them. And everyone's <laughs> always like, Hannah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm there. I'm there to remember it for you. <laughs> You're also there when I'm like, oh, you can't actually make me sick because I'm a paladin. And you're like. I'm like, God damn it, Hannah. <laughs> Even though, to be fair, that time that was something I should have remembered. You, as a player, you are responsible for knowing your own abilities. Your DM is as much as they want you to think they are, they're not all knowing all the time. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. Where I think fifth edition, because it, it lends itself really well, I think you get the same. You can get the same amount of enjoyment out of it, regardless of how strictly you take the rules. There's the joke. I I'm, I've seen it before, but I tell it all. I say it all the time now. Where like the first rule of Dungeons and Dragons is to have fun, but mm-hmm. it's true. <laughs> like it's right. in. The DM's guide, it's in the player's handbook, where the first rule of Dungeons & Dragons is to have fun. Because ultimately, what it is, is a game. It's a game that you play with your friends to have a good time. And as much as I understand, if you don't like to play the way the McElroys play, I can kind of see how them basically playing Calvin Ball... With a lot of the rules, they totally own up to this because they're just like, guys, we don't we don't really care. I can see how that can be kind of a hindrance for immersion and stuff like that. I had I have a friend who it, it's just to them it's just too casual where they, they can't quite get over a need to correct necessarily. But when it's like it's like being a go I remember some there was a post that's like Now, I know what being a ghost is because I know the answer to something that someone is talking about on a podcast I'm listening to, (laughs) and you can't can't say anything. (laughs) But them not worrying so much about the rules certainly doesn't take away from the narrative fulfillment that they find through the game. And some of that is because even though I was amazed he'd never done it before, but I actually want to talk about why I think it was good he'd never done it before. Griffin McElroy had never played Dungeons and Dragons before this show. Most of them hadn't. I think Travis was the only one who did. I think the interesting thing about the rules in the context of the Adventure Zone and collaborative storytelling is that I think the rules kind of let the collaborative storytelling happen because when you have rules, you don't have to work at cross purposes so much and you all know what's going on and what's possible like it gives it structure that you can then if everyone is has the same structure then you can write a story together you know i'm not writing you know a gothic noir while you're trying to write high fantasy while someone else is trying to write something with completely different conventions like we have a set of conventions we're all speaking the same storytelling language we can now work together more effectively, I think. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. And it's a game where communication really is the foundation, even like before you start. Because 
sometimes it can happen where people can get kind of at cross purposes with games where um, one of the things that I learned where um, I actually am running the same module we ran for our group with another group is one of the things that's good about Dungeons and Dragons, but also like hard to get your head around if you've never done it before with a game like D&D is not having full narrative control. And I think this happens more to DMs than it does to players is there's so many moving parts within an an RP group that you're never going to have full control. And some people really like that because it lets that collaboration happen, like you said. And sometimes people get frustrated rather than inspired by it. Um, I remember I went through a patch in our game where I was really bad at trying to micromanage. I tried to never let it get to you guys, but I realized that I was like, I was DMing the way I thought I was supposed to, not in a way that we were going to enjoy most. So I think what was good about the fact that the McElroys hadn't really played D&D or knew much about it before starting the show is they didn't come to it with those preconceived notions. Yeah. Which I think it made the show stronger in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's what, part of what made, made Griffin such a good DM and why he continues to be a very good DM on the show is he wasn't bogged down by what he thought D&D had to be. Because you don't have to do anything with any given story in D&D. As long as everybody's on the same page and your players and your DM and everybody all work together, that's, that's the point. The story itself can be whatever you want. Like he said once in one of the, the, the Adventure Zone zones that they do, that when he, he would usually have the skeleton of the story, like, I think he said he knew basically the whole overarching plot of what had happened and what was going on by the end of the first arc. But each individual arc, he was like, I don't want to make my brothers feel like I I'm just need to give them a script, because that's not what the game's about. And that's not fun at the end mm-hmm. of the day. So collaborative storytelling can go a lot of places. I think that we can't, sometimes it feels like we can't quite reach on our own because we all make choices that someone else maybe wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think really helped me get back into creating and to be more flexible with stuff that I do have full narrative control over rather than being like, I need to hammer this into this little box that I think it has right. to be. Because I, through playing our game, I was like, well, that's that's not fun. <laughs> and ultimately, creating something and playing a game is supposed to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think, too. So you kind of, you mentioned the idea of not having full narrative control. And I think that's definitely true, 100%. And I definitely see why it would impact the DM more than the players. But even I've had moments where I'm like, I want to do this thing, but then I can't do the thing that I was planning to do because somebody else did something Mm -hmm. different than what I thought they were going to do. And I think that's kind of okay, and it lets you think on your feet. And, you know, improv is fun, and and D&D in a space with, like, five other people (laughs) is, is, like, a safe zone to do that. But I think what I'm trying to get at with the not having full narrative control is that for that to work and for it to be satisfying and for some other reasons, D&D requires, and this might sound weird, but it requires a certain level of vulnerability and trust. Like, I wouldn't have fun if this were five people I didn't know and, like, couldn't cry about what happened in the game with and like people are handing me tissues and rubbing my back and like crying with me and like we built that together but we wouldn't have been able to build that without being vulnerable with each other and and allowing that to happen and like even we do one campaign where I play like a large male wizard Mm -hmm. and I do a very silly voice for (laughs) for the character 
And there is no other context in which I would feel comfortable being that silly, except at that table with you all and maybe, like, my significant other. Yeah. And, like, that's so special to me that this is, like, the one place where I can be as ridiculous as I want to be and build this thing with you. And, And, like, they feed into each other, like, building a thing together makes you able to trust someone more and be more vulnerable with them. But it also, those qualities allow you to build something in the first place. So, I don't know. I think that's one of the reasons why the Adventure Zone is special to me. Because you you mentioned this, too, in the pre-production meeting. Mm-hmm. That one of the things you like about the Adventure Zone is that you can see the deepening relationships between the players. And, and as the thing that they are making grows, so do those connections. Yes. I, I think there's something very special about the Adventure Zone because they're all family. It's just a little bit different than a show like Critical Role, um, a show like High Rollers, where you get the same effect. And I know Critical Role, they've talked about this, in especially in the break between their two campaigns. They're almost a year into their second at this point. They all feel like family now because they've been through this thing that even if it's just in the theater of the mind that you've been through together it doesn't matter if it quote-unquote actually happened you went through those emotions with each other and there's some things that you can't go through without being friends i think and going into a place where you have that level of vulnerability like you said it requires a certain level of trust and that and that counts for for dms too and, and and players is it is really hard to work up the courage to make something even if you're working off a module to make something present it to a group of people and be like okay now play play in this sandbox i've created for you (laughs) that takes a lot of trust and if you don't have it and you try to really exert that narrative control it usually breaks bad Thankfully, we are in we are in a group of people where I do not feel that way, and I know we've had a couple of friends try out DMing too, and it's it's all gone really great. Yeah, the game where where you you play, you're... I, I love him. I love him so much, Copernicus. <laughs> I can't. Yes, my wizard who's named not as funny as Taco, perhaps, but Copernicus we're playing a legend of zelda themed game yes and um i play because i'm a player because our friends the dm and i play valir which is a much more zelda name i'm a monk one of the things about D that i didn't talk about is you get stats i think me and one of our friends i think does characters the polar opposite of the way i do where i'm like i want to make insert race and class here and then I'll roll their stats and I'll figure out who that person is after I roll the stats. Because with Valir, <laughs> I was like, okay, 18 dexterity, pretty decent constitution, 18 wisdom, 8 charisma. And I'm like, I know precisely who this person is. He doesn't lie <laughs> and he doesn't have any pupil skills. Character creation in D&D is very fun for me because um, depending on which way you come at it, whether you have an idea of what kind of character and their personality that you want, or if you have it come out of the numbers. There's a way to put and conceptualize on paper something that normally would exist just in your head. And there's something about that that's weirdly satisfying to me. I could talk for, for forever about, like... Yeah, we could talk a long time. Because D&D is the thing that, like... And I might, I might get very emotional listeners. I'm oh. sorry. But D&D is a thing that really... It helped me feel closer to you guys. Because when we started playing, it was our first winter. We started in February, I believe. It was the first year we were all out of college. We didn't have the excuse of going to the same school and living in the same building to see (laughs) each other. Yeah. One of the things that, and this is not to knock anybody I knew in high school, though I doubt any of them listen to this show except for our one our one friend, is you kind of realize, I think, when you leave school for the first time, was I friends with that person because 
I want them to be my friend or am I friends with them because we see each other eight hours a day? (laughs) And Uh, that can happen in college too, I think, to a lesser extent. mm -hmm. When you don't have the built-in system to see people and interact with them and when you have to now expend an effort to fit them into your adult life, which is significantly harder. Yeah. It can put a strain on those relationships. And I think, especially because one of our friends was down in Columbus getting our master's, like, I think over a a spectrum of of intensity, I think we were kind of feeling that pressure of okay, we all want we all wanted to stay friends, we wanted to stay in a friend group, but like I lived on my own. One of one person was down in Columbus, one person was still going to school, you were getting your masters and living alone and like all this other stuff and like we didn't work together anymore. So we didn't see each other every day. I think I finished my masters by that point. Yeah, I think you did. But I had, like, that gaping hole in my life where grad school had been. All of a sudden, (laughs) I didn't know what to do with myself. You're like, how do I fill these 25 hours a week? Yeah, and part of that was Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, because it it really started as an excuse to see each other, I think, more than anything else. Because we uh, had tried to do a book club, and that had sort of floundered. Mm -hmm. By that point, like, no one was doing the reading. We weren't meeting regularly. Mm-hmm. And when we did, like, most people wouldn't show up. It was the same group of people, but we'll show up for D&D if we can get our calendars. Yeah, like, this time of year, it's hard for everybody because everybody's got the plans holidays, every weekend. And... Finals. <sighs> Finals. Final <laughs> projects. Blah. But it's, that's what it started as was just an excuse to hang out with each other in somebody's basement and play a game of pretend, essentially. And it grew into something that we looked forward to so much that one time, it was our first year and I was going on vacation. I think this happened twice, actually. um, Where I went on (laughs) vacation for like three weeks in the middle of May. And you were like, what do you mean we're not paying? We're not playing for a month and a half. Yeah. Like, this is unacceptable. Because you do become like so into it you get so invested i know the the boys on the adventure zone went through this as well whenever they would have like one-on-one stuff happen where there was one episode where travis mcelroy was tearing up the whole time because they're talking about these like past instances that were so important to his character and he's just like i'm so close to this guy (laughs) like i've played him every other week for two hours for a year and a half. Yeah. Like, you you get to know and you feel ownership of those characters at some point. Even if you never have full narrative ownership, you grab onto characters that feel almost like a part of you. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel that with the first character I built, who is that human paladin. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm fiercely, fiercely protective of that character and everything that she... See, I'm going to be the one who gets emotional. And everything that she (laughs) means to me and, you know, what that character allowed me to, like, feel and do, which is something that I kind of struggle with sometimes is I don't get angry and I built a character that was angry all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was an intentional choice, but I realized in hindsight what I had done, I think. Yeah, I, I think, because he's still with you guys, I think Ismark, who's a character in the module in Curse of Strahd that I'm learning, having run it multiple times now, will never go unromanced. <laughs> the party will cling to him, but he became as close to my player character as I think any of the characters um, that you run as a DM can. Even even when we started going into stuff that I had homebrewed myself, he became this character that I made up who could be optimistic and be positive. And some of that was because for a little bit, you guys were like murder hobos trying to be diplomats and just trying to be like how do we be good people do we even want to be good people what does good even mean and to to me having him kind of be there to be 
if anything else, somebody you could, like, bounce ideas off of who would have, not for everybody, but would have a different perspective and have that perspective be shaped by the environment you guys were in, especially. Mm -hmm. That became really important to me. And, like, when he died (laughs) in an episode, this not an episode, we don't have episodes, in a session this year, it was intense. I knew... It was what he would have done. How he got killed was what he would have done. I'm all about role-playing characters to their detriment because that's how real people are. Mm-hmm. Is you're like, oh, you're not, oh, this is a negative character trait. Like, this will be my, this will be my downfall. You don't know that as a person. Well, sometimes you feel like you do. But <laughs> it's, I didn't get emotional about it until I went home. Mm. after all that stuff and i just sat back and i thought about what happened and i was like so blown away by the fact that these these five people sitting in front of me could work together as ruthlessly and efficiently to bring their friend back from the dead (laughs) as much as you guys did like the fact that you guys had that whole ritual where like like, so much I think of the tone of the game in some ways, and I know for some characters, like, changed mm-hmm. because that happened. Even though we had spent most of the game in a world where, like, people died and there was this ever-present evil god threat, like, until it came home for somebody, it was almost like it didn't feel quite as real. And then when something happened that was a direct result of, like, the guys you guys were fighting... It was like, oh, this is something that we're not invincible to. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And there's moments almost like that in the Adventure Zone uh-huh. that are like bottle moments when you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, this is a thing that I will remember about the show forever. And mine, one of, one of mine is the Journal of Sheriff Isaac oh. about the chalice in the 11th hour. There's a line, I believe it's Taco, because Justin McCroy's really good at being, like, really funny for a few episodes and then just, like, dropping a bomb on you. <laughs> He's really fucking good at it and it infuriates me. Because <laughs> I'm like, Justin, you can't play with my emotions like this. But there's a line, I believe it's in the last episode of The Stolen Century, where he's like, sometimes there's no good or bad decisions, there's just decisions. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you can't do that to me, Justin. But there's there's so many of these weird bottle moments that are made poignant, not only because of the story and how it's progressed, but because of the medium makes it so that you have to wait for payoff in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. And it only really works when you provide closure and pay off to stuff that you promised like i think that's kind of the thing we're going towards where when you pub when you're publishing and creating things in real time there's this level of interaction that i don't think creators have ever had before yeah and that started i really think with like web comics yes and <laughs> like how Nimona had an active comment board every week where people were writing sonnets, weren't they? Yeah, I love that community. That was one of the best experiences. I mean, I never wrote anything in the comments, but someone did like a weekly tribute sonnet to the the comic. And to be a part of a community where people are creating back at you, I think is so interesting to mm-hmm. watch that dynamic. And you get a lot of that with the Adventure Zone because there's so much fan art that came out of it and Mm -hmm. just to see how everyone pictures these characters differently i just i love that i love that i love that there's a feedback loop that you can engage with as a creator if you choose to right because you don't have to but i i think that is something and i think the macros have done this the whole time they've been creating it's gonna take me like five years but I've been listening to the back catalog of their comedy podcast, My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is nearing 500 episodes, I think. Even like when they first started out, they've always been very receptive of that feedback loop and wanted, even if they didn't in, like speak directly into it all the time, they're always willing to listen, which is something that I'm glad we're putting more and more of a focus on. 
in content creation, even though sometimes that can get a little ugly. Not gonna lie. Sometimes fandom is not a good thing. And I, and I think fandom as a whole, because we've had more recently situations where things have kind of gotten a little bad, it started to be like, well, fandom as a whole, because people like to generalize and find patterns. People are like, well, fandom as a whole is X. And that's just not true. I think you can find variations depending on the source material, depending on are the creators also involved in this community and just like the makeup of who's in mm-hmm. into what. Like everything's going to be a little bit different. And to say that like, oh, all fandom is X probably isn't as productive as we would want to think it is. Yeah, and for someone who's been around fandom for a long time, there have been all-out, quote-unquote, wars between members of the same fandom. And, like, I'm sure that could be categorized under, like, negative things about fandom. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> like, it's not homogenous, and I think yeah, we have some lingering idea of the nerd as, like, that pasty white guy who lives in his mom's basement and, like, can't function in social situations. And, I mean, we've talked about this before. Nerdery has made it to the mainstream. Like, it's it's not... The people in fandom are all kinds of people of all backgrounds, races, religions, ages, whatever other demographics you want to throw in there. So, like, to think that they're all the same is quite silly, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. We just had a discussion, actually, in one of my graduate courses about spaces for women on the internet Ooh. and it was me and yeah but me and and someone else were talking about i think she she was more focused on fandom mm-hmm. because fandom is most famous for having a high population of women mm-hmm. like communities that have transformative works yes typically have a lot of women i was talking about spaces for women in male dominated spaces like, uh, I've talked about this on the show a couple times. I play a lot of video games. play a lot of online video games, which is a very male-dominated space, where it's shown that way. And some of it, I'll use this more specific example, Overwatch, which is published by Blizzard Entertainment. It's an online game. It's team-based. Like, you can get into a voice chat and talk to other people on your team. As far as, like, with my experience, most people are totally chill. But... There's always that population, that like intercommunity of, I'll just say it, is dudes <laughs> who have this preconceived notion that women don't play video games and that, or that they can't, or will make like, thankfully, this has never happened to me. You mean like we all hear the stories about people who get like horribly harassed because they're women doing something they like. Mm. And whenever I see, criticism of fandom i'm always afraid that that's what it's stemming from yeah is this this idea of hating things women like and that's certainly not the case all the time there's tons of criticism about fandom that is totally found oh it's legit (laughs) totally legit when your reason for hating fandom is because it's stupid teenage girls oftentimes that's just not true yeah we all kind of know this i think people who listen to this show probably know this People have hated things women have liked for literally ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unfortunately a thing that we've we've had to deal with. It's like, I'll never forget this. This is like you remembered when shit like this happens to you, which is so sad. This didn't even happen to me. It was something I overheard oh. at a Barnes and Noble like five years ago. Oh. When I was I was going because I was buying some comics and I was walking to find some other book I wanted and I heard a dude in the dvd section on the other side of the bookshelf that was like something 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 well i just can't believe a woman could be into batman oh and it caught me so off guard (laughs) because of this really like weirdly nonchalant way he said it and also i was buying a batman comic (laughs) so i just like i was i would never say anything because interactions like that with men i don't know terrify me we all know why but it's so weirdly and commonly insidious yeah to just make those assumptions and then when somebody tries to enter a community 
that has a reputation of not being for them, often that gets confirmed for them Mm -hmm. because the people who are loudest in those groups are always the people who don't want you there. Yeah. It's the same thing with Overwatch. Like, there was a whole controversy earlier last year when the rosters for their professional teams came out and there were no women. (laughs) Even though a lot of the top streamers who play at a what could be considered a professional level are women. Um, and they finally came out at a certain point and were like, well, if we want to have women in the league, we're going to have to work on the community. It is 100% easier to just not do that. Yeah. Unfortunately, which is what happened. Mm. Acknowledging there's a problem is a good step. I don't want to like limit that because a lot of communities, especially around gaming, don't admit that it's a problem. But you have to like take action. Yeah. After that. At least in that particular instance, it really seemed like they weren't they weren't going to. Yeah. Int- it's interesting to me because we play in an all-girl Dungeons and Dragons group. And I think that's important. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because traditionally, I don't think this is the case now. People have really broken into D&D over the years. I'm sure mm-hmm. there are a lot of pioneering women and people of color. We have to thank for that. Yes. But D&D is this traditionally male space. It is the white yeah. male nerd in his mom's space who can't function socially. <laughs> I have not experienced this because I play with all women, and I've never tried to play in a new group or in a group with any male men anything like that any of those people (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i think there are still cases where dungeons and dragons it's not welcoming to women still in some places so i don't know i guess what i'm trying to get at here is like dungeons and dragons isn't excluded from that list so i think it's getting fatter and i think one thing we haven't mentioned yet that has to do with the adventure zone that we did want to talk about a little bit was the idea Mm -hmm. of inclusivity and the fact that we saw different gender identities, we saw different people. It made me feel more welcome in that space. Yeah, like what one of the ongoing jokes is like, the boys can't really do anything. They need a competent woman to come in and help them. And one of the big heroes at the end, because it comes out the taco is a twin, and his twin is a trans woman, and she's, like, the bossest. Like, she comes in and is basically the reason they all stay alive. Like, there's this whole... It's a long story that we can't get into, but it's really good. Go listen to it. But there's so many of... And I think Griffin has continued this into their new arc. So many of the most memorable, most capable NPCs are women. And that's really important, because if it's not something you're mm-hmm. used to doing, you do have to go out of your way to do that. If it's not your worldview, because it's important to know, because they they talk about this all the time. The McElroys are four white straight dudes, and they have been their whole lives, shockingly. They've mentioned this, and we won't belabor the point, but they've come out and talked about how being involved in the community and understanding their role as storytellers and making a Dungeons & Dragons show for an audience, and how that's obviously very different than playing a game just for yourselves and understanding that difference was one of Mm -hmm. the main things they got out of doing the show in the first place and i think we're seeing that more and more in online dungeons and dragons spaces i just started um watching the new campaign of high rollers and i got like weirdly emotional when um mark humes who's the dm for that group is very good um another person who's probably been dming longer than i've been alive He's very good at casual representation. What I mean by that is is it's so integrated into the world. And you can tell he's doing his best not to make be like, oh, hey, this person's gay or whatever. Like, it's making it part of the world. And I think that's the next logical step to including inclusivity in storytelling. I think it needed to be loud and it needed to be proud. And in some cases, it still does. And that's never a bad thing. We're, we're, to, we're to the point now. It's like how I was trying to tell someone this the other day. We don't need any sad gay tragedies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, we got it. It's fine. 
And now we can have stories where, like, these people can just exist and are allowed the same kinds of stories that straight white people have been allowed to have their entire lives. Yeah. I guess, too, it's interesting to kind of watch the McElroy brothers wrangle with inclusivity, but also I think it's important to acknowledge that own stories are important. Like, I think we Mm -hmm. need more people on the Dungeons and Dragons scene who are minorities and from different backgrounds because I think there's still a lot of homogenousness in the actual DMs and players still, at least in the mainstream ones that I'm familiar with, which is admittedly just Critical Role (laughs) and... Uh, the adventure zone. I think that's fair, though. And it's something that I'm trying my best to look out for nowadays. Because it's... It is important. Because as much as you can make a character or a story include something, the, like, you can't change who you are. I really and truly think that people of color and women and people of different gender identities have played D&D for forever. They just never had a space to talk about it. And I think it's important that we make those spaces and we make them visible spaces. Just because you weren't given a seat at the original table doesn't mean that people haven't just gone off and made their own. Yeah, and I think while we're talking about a podcast and the first podcast that we've talked about, I think it's important to acknowledge the accessibility of podcasts as a Mm. storytelling mechanism for everyone, at least to a certain degree, it's more accessible than maybe some other mediums because, like, you know, this podcast, we got some mics on the cheap end of the spectrum. We use an open source software program and Skype, which is also free. I mean, no one listens to the show, and that's fine, but... (laughs) Like, the the threshold to enter into the medium is, is lower than other mediums, and it's more equitable in that sense. And I think that in addition to, like, Dungeons & Dragons needing to be more equitable, podcasting is a good mechanism to promote more people who may have been traditionally disadvantaged to allow them a platform to tell their stories. You need less privilege, perhaps, to be able to start doing it. Yeah, I I think that that's a fair point. And I think that it, it is definitely a different space, even than it was probably five years ago. Podcasting, I think, had a bit of a fast track with stuff like that because we had, I've talked about this before, I think, about how I trace the grandfather of all audio drama, modern audio drama, Welcome to Night Vale, which was gay as hell (laughs) and colorful as hell and didn't give a shit. I think if we had had any other show be the kickoff for that, we wouldn't see, especially in audio drama and other kinds of storytelling, the wealth of different stories that, that we have that you can get for free. Like, there's something so weirdly magical about podcasting Mm -hmm. as much as it um unfortunately i think we also have talked about this about how in the search for legitimacy are we just heading towards corporateness but let's not worry about that today because that's a whole other conversation you're right the threshold is so low and there's not the limitations that are traditionally placed on other media Mm -hmm. where you have to work twice as hard to get half half as far that still i think is in play in podcasting like it is in any other industry yeah but it's not as insurmountable which is important and that isn't something we we should discount but i also think it's our responsibility as consumers and um i know the audio drama community is all about kind of pushing each other up and stuff like that we're not really involved in that because we're not an audio drama (laughs) rest in peace some mistakes were made (laughs) we could still write an audio drama one day we could still write an audio drama also plug listen to violet beach by my friend and yours b highland our sister show (laughs) 
just way more popular than us. Because <laughs> she, to be fair, she works a lot harder on it than we do on this show. I'm old. I have a full-time job. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else I can give you. Yeah. Sweet listeners. Even if we were going through that weird patch of that yearning for legitimacy that we're having right now, I do still think it's it's a good place that will continue to grow for creators. Do you want to wrap up by talking about your favorite Adventure Zone moment? Yes, I think... Oh, God. Oh, you sprang this on me. Yeah, surprise! (laughs) I think my favorite Adventure Zone moment where the the storytelling really got kicked up to 11 is, um, this is a side note, but it's important for the moment I'm going to talk about. Griffin writes music for the show. And he releases it for, I believe it's just pay what you want. It's either free or pay what you want. And he usually donates the proceeds to like causes he lives in texas so he i think like when hurricane harvey came through it was for like the houston spca and stuff like that but um there's a particular track on the soundtrack for it it was the arc where they went to wonderland Mm. and which was this place that basically that was run by these two liches who were heavily based off jesse and james from pokemon (laughs) that basically just stole the life from you the longer you were in it and there's a track on there called arms outstretched and it was a moment where magnus got taken out of his body and he was getting sucked into the ethereal plane no the astral plane and he was like they were gonna lose him forever and griffin had something planned for them to like go and get him and all this other stuff but taco and merle ended up working together in such a way that they pulled him back and it's there's something about the intrinsic collaboration of well we're not leaving this person behind like i'm not doing i'm not going with this for your narrative in a way that was that wasn't at all vindictive like even when they would be like well griffin we have to do what our characters would do we're not going to do what we think you want because that's not fair and griffin would be like yeah i don't want you to man because that's not fair. That was one of the moments where you could see the the growth in the characters who, at the beginning of the story, like especially Taco and Merle, were based off of stock characters that come in the D&D starter set. Which is fine. Sometimes, like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. It's a lot of math. It's hard. And to see them just become these, like, full people who were like, okay, so we do this and we do this and we work around what you thought we were doing. And we end up making the story better because of it. There's just something weirdly magical about it. where And you can hear in Griffin's voice, he's just like, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know. I think that was my favorite moment because it really kind of solidified the relationship between the trio where they're just like, well, we wouldn't leave Magnus behind, so we're not going to do it. Yeah. And then Magnus got to be in a mannequin and say, I'm getting my body back, you undead fuck. <laughs> Which is one of the best ending lines they've ever had. Yeah. Have you thought of your favorite moment yet? So I think I have. So full disclosure, I think, well, I just, I kept thinking of different moments. And I have a hard time even picking a favorite arc, but I think it's the 11th hour is my favorite arc. And mm, it's so good. I really love roscoe and that moment where they they find that it's a journal right they find the journal Mm, the journal of sheriff yeah and like all is revealed and that moment is narratively so satisfying to me like it just pulled the whole like the whole arc like made sense in that moment and I I really, like, technically what happened was amazing. Like, that episode from a structural point and a skill point is amazing. And then, like, you follow that up. I'm going to do two-parter because I'm a cheater. <laughs> That's okay. The moment at the end where they're, they're racing a worm, like a, a fiery worm thing. I don't know, maybe it wasn't fiery. It wasn't fire. I think it was set on fire at some ah. point, but it 
It was it was a, a big purple worm. Yeah, and it's gonna munch them, and they have to like race the worm through like a rickety old school coal mine and like the carts, <laughs> <laughs> and which is one really cool construct. There's a point at the end where it's like they're not gonna make it, and like things are falling apart, and it's terrible. But Roscoe, like, sacrifices himself. He's, like, an elemental and a bird. Like, it's one person, which I found that conceit to be also amazing. (laughs) And um, you think that, I mean, and Roscoe probably thinks this too, but, like, Roscoe basically sacrifices himself for these, like, basic strangers who have been, like, he's known them for less than a, like, not very long. Like, less than a day. Yeah, because isn't the con- the concept of the 11th hour is that it takes place within the same hour? Yeah, over and over again. Over and over again. So, like, in fiction, they've only known these people for, like, an hour out yeah. of their lives. But then they make that big sacrifice. I'm going to get emotional yes. about Yes, Roscoe, he- they make that hour. sacrifice. And then it turns out that Roscoe's whole being wasn't lost. It just all moved to the little bird. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know, that moment is just so, because, like, I kind of like it when people pull their punches like that, because losing Roscoe after just meeting them would have been, I mean, you didn't just meet them as the listener, but, like, I really got attached to that character and what that character meant, because that character was, like, they were a manifestation of, like, that bond between like father and daughter right so mm-hmm. yeah anyway griffin mcelroy how dare how dare you <laughs> griffin mcelroy fight me challenge i so i think with with my final thoughts on the adventure zone it's real good you should listen to it but i think it really has set a bar and a tone for how we use um methods of collaborative storytelling in long form like podcasts and i think and i think that's a good thing because it's ultimately the story of the adventure zone balance was that darkness and despair cannot survive it it was kind of in the end was like the power of hope and joy and choosing joy was a big thing Mm -hmm. at the end of the show which is something that I think a lot of people came to in different ways. Um, I've talked about this about the show a couple times, where, like, I went through a really, really bad patch with a lot of mental illness stuff, where it got to a point, and people have been more eloquent about this than I do, where at some point you have to choose to stay alive, and you have to choose to work on being better, and you have to choose joy over the despair. And it's hard. It's really hard. And it's it's a hard pit to dig yourself out of. But the fact that the, the show made good on something that I believe Jane Austen once said about, like, my characters, after some struggle in time, will have all that they desire. Where everybody got a happy ending. Maybe it was just at the point in my life that it happened at. But in media, I think for a period of time, that wasn't guaranteed that people were going to get happy endings. And it was kind of almost in vogue to be, like, really subversive, (laughs) even though there's not really anything subversive about it. People get unhappy endings all the time. That's real life. Yeah, that's real life. We don't need it. Like, happy endings aren't boring. It was important for a story that could have ended with everything going to shit and the world falling into darkness that the ultimate weapon against it was kindness and hope, and empathy, and joy. I think I think that's something that we shouldn't let go of. Okay, robots, that is it for us today. We hope that you enjoyed listening to us talk about Dungeons & Dragons as much as we enjoy talking about Dungeons & Dragons. We're going to do a roundup episode next time in two weeks. We're going to each talk about five things that we consumed media-wise. It could be anything, but mine will probably be all books, and that'll be the the show. Five things each that we haven't already talked about on the show in a rapid-fire 
rapid is in heavy air quotes. After that, we're going to take a little break. To, we're going to take an episode off and ease into the new year. So you'll be hearing from us in like mid to late January again. We, we have some planning to do. We have to get our strategy in order. And if you can hear my cat running around in the background, I'm not going to be able to edit that out. Sorry. You, you guys don't know this because I shelter you from this most of the time, but she's awful. I have met your cat on several occasions and I can confirm. <laughs> so on that note, with my cat being terrible, Rachel, would you like to give the people the social media deets? I will give you the social media deets. We are available um, on many, many social medias of various update frequency. Uh, we are most active on Twitter at Remedial Studies. I cross-post all of our episodes to our Tumblr page, remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. Um, I'm trying to get better about updating our Instagram more. That's at Remedial Studies as well. Um, and you can send us an email at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. So, we will see you, um, I believe the next, the Roundup episode is coming out on Christmas, our second annual Christmas gift to you. Yeah. Our beloved listener. Will it be the gift you wanted or needed? Probably not, but you're going to get it anyway. So with that, we say goodbye for now, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>